Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. This is a roundup of news for, I guess, the week ending December the 16th, 2011. Merry Christmas, happy holidays from the land of snow and honey. So, Christopher Hitchens died yesterday uh, at the age of 62, and I am an enormous fan of his writing. Not, of course, of all of his political philosophies, uh, the Marxism, Leninism, and so on, and his support for the Iraqi war, the general warmongering that occurs in his perception that the fight against radical theology is to be won through bullets rather than through philosophy. But nonetheless, I mean, a staggeringly talented writer, a very brave man uh, in terms of his martial courage, as he is one of his great um, attributes that he admired in others was martial or physical courage, doubtless comes down from his father, who was in the Royal Navy. And yet, I mean, he did not have any luck combating the same demons that helped destroy his father. His father died of a similar cancer or the same cancer that he died of as a result of smoking and drinking. And he had an extremely tragic experience, of course, when his mother, uh, a secret, secret Jewess, committed suicide while having eloped from his, her marriage with uh, a fellow. Uh, after trying to get in touch with her son frantically, uh, she did not get through to him. And then she killed herself. And that is monstrous and, and debilitating. And I'm sure had no small part in driving the demons of drink and cigarettes that took his life. A courageous man, uh, if you read uh, Hitch 22, his courage in the face of the abominable fatwa against Salman Rushdie was uh, extraordinary. Uh, his courage in visiting war zones and his commitment to his ideology is impressive. I admire even <laughs> bad ideologies where people are committed to them. And I think the best way to escape a bad ideology is to commit to it fully. So I think that's admirable. I think that he is definitely uh, old school. Uh, he comes um, not dissimilar background to mine. Obviously, I grew up uh, in England and I went to boarding school for a while. And, uh, you know, from, from poverty and, and was in boarding school for a while. And he came from relatively lower middle class. His parents scrimped and saved to get him into college. Uh, in England, and he joined a very literary set. He was a fantastic debater, a tireless anti-theist, not just an atheist, but an anti-theist. And if you see some of his debates about uh, theism, or you read God is Not Great, which is a slightly frustrating for me, but but very powerful book, particularly the chapter on the cargo cults and how they developed uh, in these islands, a, a very tireless advocate of atheism. Now, the frustrating thing, of course, from a philosophical standpoint, is that um, Chris Hitchens was a very strong and powerful atheist, but because he comes from the left-wing, uh, anti-war, anti-racism, anti-capitalism background, and uh, I'm in agreement with at least two of three, uh, two of uh, those three. Uh, his uh, atheism comes from socialism. His atheism comes from communism, and as I've said before, one of the great challenges of reasoning from first principles is that if you really do strictly reason from first principles, the big bag of crazy that we're all force-fed as children has no place to go. And so it's sort of like you got a balloon. You push one side in, the other side just pops out. And so the irrationality that unfortunately is, is inflicted upon us, our brains are like the feet of women uh, in China in the 19th century who had their feet bound or the elongated necks of uh, African women who have been unnaturally distorted. Our minds are... Uh, twisted and broken, and it takes a lot of work to reshape them in the image of truth, reason, and reality, and empiricism, and science, and facts. And so he was drawn towards uh, Marxism, Leninism. Uh, to his credit, he was part of the anti 
Stalin left. Uh, the, the, the support for, for Stalin and the support for the dictatorships, uh, the communist dictatorships, particularly in Russia, is a great stain upon the history of the left. And the history of the left has a lot to recommend itself in terms of its anti-racism and anti-war, anti-imperialism. Uh, it's fantastic, but its, uh, its support and sympathy for um, tyrannies uh, that are communist-flavored, as well as their uh, opposition to attempts to ferret out Soviet spies in the State Department uh, through Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s is a great stain upon the honor of the left, and the left has a lot to, to be honorable about, in my opinion. But from the craziness within his family, uh, the secrets and lies within his family uh, led him to the craziness, yeah, it's all just my opinion, right, but led, led him to the craziness of Marxism and Leninism, Leninism, and then when he overcame that, which was uh, an impressive thing to do and something to be admired if somebody openly is an avowed ideologue of a certain flavor and then they reject and, and overturn that, they then lend themselves to be open to charges of hypocrisy from here to eternity. He didn't, uh, that did not face him. And, uh, but unfortunately, uh, then he became more of a traditional neocon, you know, pro-war against foreign ideologies, uh, and uh, he was even pro the re-election of George Bush, though he did say only slightly. But his, um, his rationalism in the religious sphere does not extend itself to rationalism within the sphere of politics. You know, the great secret, it, it's, it's so incredibly easy to be philosophical, uh, it, it, but it's also so, so incredibly hard. Sorry to be Mr. Fortune Cookie Paradox dude, but uh, this is something that I learned uh, very early on in college. If you read Voltaire or, or sort of Enlightenment thinking that particularly centered around France, you see, as, as European civilizations encountered other civilizations that had never heard of European civilizations, one of the things that writers did that was very powerful was they imagined how their own civilizations would look through the eyes of someone who'd never heard of their civilization. And if you want to start thinking philosophically, you just need to pop yourself into the glowing brain of that <laughs> orbiting baby, uh, orbiting giant baby head at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and imagine that you're looking at the world through the eyes of an alien, uh, through the eyes of somebody who's never encountered human society. And of course, the first thing you would see is that there are no countries. There are no countries in the world. The only thing that's visible from space is uh, the, um, uh, the Great Wall of China and my giant outsized ego. And there are no countries. And you would say, wow, these imaginary lines seem to have a lot of power for people. You would also see that there's no such thing as government. There are people with guns who put other people in jail, uh, but there really is no such thing uh, as government. You would see that there's no consistent religiosity. Uh, you could see a lot of things that are fantastical that only seem real to us because of our continual exposure to them. You know, if you hear a, a noise, a, a whine, like my voice perhaps, if you hear a whine coming into your ear over a particular period of time, your ear will simply stop transmitting that information to your brain and you long, no longer hear that sound. Well, the culturally crazy sound called irrational prejudice is something we don't hear anymore because we're just so used to it. It's so much part of our environment. And so that same critical rationality that he brought, the skepticism and empiricism, uh, and in a sense cold-eyed rationalism that he brought to religion, of course he needed to bring to the state and to these other fictional entities used to bludgeon, control, and crush people. And if he had been able to do that, and I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm dissing the hitch, and that is a presumptuous thing to do, and I'm sure I could be dissed in return in my own ways, many ways, but... The reality is that if he had brought that same cold-eyed skepticism to the state, he would not have been in support of the Iraqi war because he would have recognized that the state's um, uh, foundation on force uh, it results in uh, an, um, 
a sort of tumoresque extrapolation of power to those at the top. Power corrupts, and that's why the state can't achieve anything uh, that is good in any kind of lasting or permanent sense, which is why the Iraq War crumbled into nothingness, despite the fact that it overturned probably one of the most vile dictators around, Saddam Hussein. So it's, to me, quite tragic that he was not able to view the world through the eyes of aliens, uh, and not in the way that they seem to enjoy inserting things into the rural butts of people, but can look at things and say, well, what is real in this world and what is not? What is fantasy? What is culture? What is prejudice? What is the historical momentum of crazy that everybody is forced to swallow as children? Um, and how does that affect everybody's thinking? That's, of course, what you need to do. And it is really kind of alarming. <laughs> it's a challenging thing to do, but that is necessary to do to see the world clearly. So I will miss his writing. I think Letters to a Young Contrarian is a great book. Hitch 22, which I haven't finished, is a good book. Uh, I think a, a little a little overlong. And um, uh, God is Not Great is, uh, is certainly an interesting book to read. Um, I wish that uh, uh, more emphasis was put upon the effects of children on children of being told, you know, they're always watching by a God that's going to send them to hell if they disobey and so on, which I think is terrible for children's minds. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, uh, a great thinker, an exciting thinker. Um, I, I really take a great deal of pleasure out of reading people's works, uh, even if I disagree with them quite a bit about certain things, because it is just another perspective to add to the <laughs> hopefully growing flute fl fruit fly multifaceted eyeball of knowledge. Anyway, some metaphors work, and then there's that one. So that's, I got a couple other things that I wanted to talk about, but um, I certainly do respect his um, descent into death, which is a, a terrifying thing. I think we can all imagine his uh, staunchness in the face of that, which is fantastic. New study just came out. Atheists are distrusted as much as rapists. A new study finds that atheists are among society's most distrusted group, comparable even to rapists in certain circumstances. Psychologists at the University of British Columbia and the University of Oregon say that their study demonstrates that anti-atheist prejudice stems from moral distrust, not dislike, of non-believers. Uh, uh, people find atheists very suspect. Uh, they don't fear God, so we should distrust them. They do not have the same moral obligations of others. Uh, this is a common refrain among atheists. People fear them as a group. And that is um, really quite chilling. Uh, of course, I mean, people who have been um, uh, atheists for uh, many years have encountered this prejudice, and I'll post a video below with some of these statistics about all of that. But uh, yeah, it, it really is quite uh, quite chilling to see this kind of stuff, um, particularly since the root of our culture in the Greek tradition was founded upon people who were atheists, at least relative to uh, mod modern religiosity. But let's see here. Uh, so, uh, religious believers distrust atheists more than they do members of other religious groups, gays or feminists, according to a new study. The only group the study's participants distrusted as much as atheists was rapists, said doctoral student Will Gervais, lead author of the study, published online in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. That prejudice had a significant effect on what kinds of jobs people said they would hire atheists to do. People are willing to hire an atheist for a job that is perceived as low trust, for instance, as a waitress, says Gervais, but when hiring for a high-trust job like a daycare worker, they were like, nope, we're not going to hire an atheist for that job. The antipathy does not seem to run both ways, though. Atheists are indifferent to religious belief when it comes to deciding who is trustworthy. Atheists don't necessarily favor other atheists over Christians or anyone else, he said. They seem to think that religion is not an important signal for who you can trust. 
The researchers found that religious believers thought the descriptions of untrustworthy people, people who steal or cheat, were more likely to be atheists than Christians, Muslims, Jews, gays, or feminists. It's quite an odd category, but anyway. Gervais was surprised that people harbor such strong feelings about a group that is hard to see or identify. He opines that religious believers are just more comfortable with other people who believe a deity with the power to reward and punish is watching them. If you believe your behavior is being watched by God, you are going to be on your best behavior, says Gervais. But that would apply for an atheist. Sorry, but that wouldn't apply for an atheist. That would allow people to use religious belief as a signal for how trustworthy a person is. So, um, and this is, yeah, this is true uh, in a variety of places. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the prejudice against atheists is um, <laughs> damning, shall we say. But uh, I believe that, that uh, first of all, it's important to understand that the history of atheism within the West is um, associated with communism. And communism was an unbelievable mind virus that attacked, well, Marxism was the opiate of the intellectuals, right? Uh, it attacked massive groups of the most influential members of society and caused the deaths of literally hundreds of millions of people throughout its uh, reign, which of course is still continuing as creeping socialism grows more and more uh, like a cancer into the formerly robust enlightened musculature of the West. And so the history of atheism is associated with with, with communism, uh, with this form of, of medieval tribal collectivism known as communism. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if, I mean, I, I would prefer a Christian to a communist, in my opinion. I mean, and, uh, I found that, uh, lots of very nice Christians, uh, in the world, uh, who have had productive conversations and debates with. So I think that Christians and non Marxist or non-communist atheists have a huge amount in common. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of sort of hands across the water. And the reality being that Christians reject certain principles of Christian theology. And that is natural because the Bible has some pretty heinous stuff in it, right? I mean, it, it approves of, of slavery. It's pro-rape under certain situations. And again, I'm not saying this is true of Christians, but in the theology itself, there's stuff which any sane person is going to find morally objectionable. And so Christians reject that stuff and focus on, you know, Jesus' love and kindness to the poor. And I think all things that I think are very nice and very good and very positive. And so there is a higher moral standard than what is written in a book. And I, I think any rational atheist and, and any rational Christian would agree to that, that we need to have conversations about morality that are not confined to cherry-picking that which you like from particular religious texts or particular secular texts like the Communist Manifesto or the platform of the Democrat Party, but perhaps I repeat myself. <laughs> so I think that it's important to have conversations about it. The mistrust is um, is a shame. Uh, it is a real shame. Um, Christianity um, and the Greco-Roman tradition have always had an uneasy back and forth uh, in the Western tradition, but in my experience, um, I've had a lot more to talk about in terms of ethics with Christians than I have with a lot, of course, postmodern secularists and, and what are called secular humanists in the Christian tradition or the Christ modern Christian tradition, particularly in America, which are people who've become rank relativists, um, usually uh, washing away resistance to any escalation of state power while assiduously building the Tower of Babel to the burning sun of infinite statism that I think rational atheists and secular, uh, sorry, and Christians are as eager to undo and to pull the bricks down from the bottom as, as is possible. So I think that that is a, a shame. I hope that there's something that can be done 
within these two communities to begin to talk more about alternatives to the definitions of virtue that are merely around social utility, pragmatism, consequentialism, and to some degree determinism, which seems to be where a lot of the scientific secular atheists are coming from, which I find pretty repugnant. So we can't just have this empty-headed biology judge everything by the consequences of its actions because that leads to no conceivably consistent moral philosophy. It's an unpracticable philosophy and it tends to cede power to those who want power the most, uh, which tend to be the worst specimens among us. So I really object to the sort of postmodern, secular, merely biological, determinist, uh, um, soulless, in a way, um, materialism of a lot of the secular uh, atheist West. At the same time, we really can't get our morals from a highly contradictory series of highly questionable works produced thousands of years ago uh, that contradict each other all the time. Neither of those two things are a replacement for a philosophy. Materialism and consequentialism and pragmatism and utilitarianism are not, uh, are not substitutes for philosophy. They displace philosophy and turn everything into whoever can lie the most about the best consequences of a particular power grab tends to get that power. And this is why the left has done nothing to slow or stop the growth of state power. And at the same time, we can't just cherry-pick from ancient texts and call ourselves rational or consistent in terms of our ethics. So I wanted to mention that. There, Of course, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, maybe it's a cheap shot, I don't know. You can let me know what you think. But when I, I, mean, when I sort of was reading this thing about how atheists uh, are uh, comparable to racists, uh, rapists in the eyes of Many religious people, um, the first thing I thought too was, well, when God put Jesus, the blastocyst, into Mary's womb, was that consensual? I don't think so. And I think if I impregnate a woman without her knowledge or desire, um, there's a, a term for that that rhymes that doesn't quite come to my mind at the moment, but uh, it's not a very pleasant term. Uh, and uh, it may involve putting a nasty drug into somebody's drink. So it is kind of ironic, but this is the kind of challenges that we face when we sort of try to talk about morality in rational terms rather than in uh, frightened or bossy terms. So, got a few more, uh, some very interesting stuff I think that's worth talking about. Oh, I thought this was a lovely one. So, um, babies. Babies and moral... Clarity. So, study of the day. Eight-month-old babies can tell right from wrong. Eight-month-old babies can tell right from wrong. Mwah! I kiss the gooey, tear-stained face of the new buds of the species. Uh, so, I'll read a little bit from this. Um, this is something that I've talked about for quite a long time, as long as I can remember, that morality is only a mystery because irrationality is foisted upon us as children. Uh, and morality is not a mystery if it is simply allowed to grow and develop uh, on its own. So, um, so here's the methodology. So, a uh, hundred babies were tested to judge, and they were supposed to judge social behavior in scenarios where some puppets were less than nice. In one setup, the infants chose their favorite animal hand puppets after watching them either give or take away toys from other good or bad puppets. And they also examined 64 older infants, aged 21 months, and so on, who were supposed to ask to reward or punish characters that previously helped or harmed another puppet. So the results were five-month-old infants uniformly liked the puppets that acted positively towards their fellow puppets. 
Eight-month-old babies, however, were more selective. They exhibited a preference for puppets, puppets that were friendly over those that were mean. The older infants uh, physically manifested this inclination by taking treats away from the bad puppets and giving them to the good puppets. See, they acted in a way that's, uh, that redistributed back that which was stolen to the original owners. So by eight months of age, babies can comprehend the notion of reciprocity and can evaluate complex social situations. The findings provide new insights into the protective mechanisms humans use to choose social alliances. So the researcher said in a statement, from as early as eight months, we are watching for people who might put us in danger and prefer to see anti-social behavior regulated. We just need to get out of the way of infants and babies and children and let them develop normally, naturally, and healthily into universal, uh, universally preferable behavior bots. <laughs> you know, that, that all we do when we're babies is we conceptualize. Right? This thing with four legs is a table. This thing with four legs is a chair. That other thing which people sit on with four legs is also a chair. And then you can identify chairs because you're abstracting into what Aristotle would call the essence or the, the conceptual aggregate of similar characteristics. And the same thing happens in terms of behavior. Uh, so I think that's completely wonderful. I think it's fantastic. And uh, it shows you the degree to which the natural healthy moral development of babies is so interfered with uh, because it's profitable to get people to believe that good is evil and evil is good for people who aren't very good themselves. So I hope that this has been helpful and useful to you. If you would like to drop a few bucks into the um, <laughs> swinging coin box that is Free Domain Radio, I would hugely appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I really do, I'm sure I'll talk to you again before Christmas, wish you the very merriest of Christmases. You can go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate to help out. And I will talk to you soon.